Bob Neal and Mick Luckhurst with you back in Florence, Italy. The good news is we are coming to you from one of the most beautiful places on earth, about three hours north of Rome, Florence, Italy. The bad news is the United States taking a real shellac. From the global perspective, soccer stands out as the most accessible and ethnically diverse team sport. I can recall my time living overseas. Our neighborhood kids would play a full game in the streets and then stop as cars passed by. And for boys, wearing a Messi or Ronaldo jersey was definitely a big fashion staple. And we even had multiple cafes designated to watch matches. It was a big part of our culture. And when I would speak with friends from Serbia, from Mexico, from all over the world, they recalled a similar cultural experience. However, in the landscape of American soccer, it presents a contrasting narrative that can be marked by various barriers. One could be socioeconomic costs. Engaging in soccer can impose financial strains, restricting entry for lower income individuals and families. It can be geographically inaccessible. Many face challenges such as lack of nearby teammates or perhaps the elite clubs are situated far away in suburbs requiring a lengthy drive for participation. And there's a cultural obstacle that contributes to the lack of diversity within the sport. These challenges contribute to the characterization of American soccer. And in the words of former US national team goalkeeper Hope Solo, a rich white kid sport. However, amidst these challenges, a story of resilience and triumph emerges the story of Jimmy Banks. Growing up as a black kid in Milwaukee's West Lawn Housing Projects, he defied the odds, becoming one of the first American-born black players to participate in the World Cup in 1990, an event that the United States hadn't seen in 40 years. Banks passed away with cancer in 2019. And today, the Milwaukee organization, Friends of Jimmy Banks, campaigns to honor and preserve his legacy. To recount his story, I sat down with Jimmy's son, Jordan Banks, and his close friend, Wendell Willis. This is Uniquely Milwaukee. It's everything you love about community stories, but more in depth. Giving the stories the time and attention they deserve. Changing perspective one episode at a time. I'm your host, Salam Fatayed, and this is Uniquely Milwaukee, stories that stick with you. Let's start from the beginning. Jimmy Banks was raised in Milwaukee's West Lawn Housing Projects, and he started to play soccer at the age of six through a Salvation Army program near Custer Avenue. Here's what Jordan Banks, his son, had to say about those early days. Based off of some of the stories that he told me, he just was, you know, playing a lot of sports as he was in high school and middle school and everything. And then he would play a lot of games with a lot of his friends in his neighborhood at West Lawn. And eventually one day they started playing soccer. So eventually he really got to get really, really good at it. And he really liked it. And he really started to pursue it where almost every single day he's going to find out what field they're going to go to, which friends he's going to do it with. And they're just going to train, play, kick around and just have a lot of fun with it whether it's doing it during school recess, after school, before school, he just always found some time to go kick it around with his friends. At 13 years old, 
Jimmy crossed paths with coach Bob Gansler, who would go on to lead the U.S. national team at the 1990 World Cup, marking the team's first participation since 1950. Reflecting on those early days, Wendell Willis said Coach Gansler had a specific skill. You know, the story I heard always growing up was Coach Gansler had seen Jimmy juggling the ball up and down the street mm-hmm. off of, I think, Villard Avenue or somewhere. And he said, well, I've got to have him on my team because it looks like he's got skill. And Bob was never a stranger to picking up talent. Culturally speaking, the love for soccer in the 70s felt like a secret. American attention was predominantly focused on other traditional sports like baseball and the other type of football. Access to soccer matches was limited. One couldn't even watch World Cup matches live on television. And in some cases, fans had to visit movie theaters and pay for satellite transmission screenings to catch a glimpse of the action. Considering this backdrop, where soccer was inaccessible and predominantly associated with elite and white communities, Jimmy Pink's triumph over numerous obstacles becomes even more remarkable. As a 50-year-old black person growing up in the city, You know, a few of us had friends that maybe were playing when we were like six, seven, eight years old. So late 70s, early 80s. We knew of like Pele retiring, but like coming to the U.S. with the New York Cosmos. And we're like enamored with that, but never really had like true hometown heroes to look up to until really mid to late 80s and the national team qualifying for the World Cup. So my exposure to Jimmy really was, you know, picking up a soccer digest that somebody had given me the copy of and it had Jimmy and Desmond Armstrong mm-hmm. in the front cover. And then subsequently, like the following year, seeing them in the World Cup, but also working for somebody at the medical college who was a big soccer fan. Mm-hmm. And we talked soccer all summer. So it was like kind of validation for me because, you know, I had like friends, cousins, relatives that kind of dabbled and played. And we were in the, whether it be a kicker's rec league or something like that. But you rarely saw anybody that looked like us playing until you see the Jimmy and Desmond and no offense to Desmond, great player as well, but Jimmy being the hometown guy, because once you pick up the magazine and you see there's a guy from Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and oh my God, the guy coaching the team is from Milwaukee too, and Coach Gansler, this is like meant to be. I, you know, finally everybody telling you, why don't you play football? Why don't you play basketball? It's like, well, I play those too, but I'm a lot better at soccer. Right, yeah. Can you recall back in the day, like, what was the media landscape of having two black players that were part of the FIFA World Cup? Was it was it a big uproar? Was it kind of unnoticeable? It was just non-existent. It was weeks later in a newspaper, or like I said, Sports Illustrated or Soccer Digest. So you'd have a few people that would cover these things, but for the most part, it was non-existent. So when you, mm-hmm. you say like, hey, by the way, did you see this? And it was kind of like the magazine that got passed around to everybody right. that Different was on your media team. time. Yeah, you know, went through the team players <laughs> and like everybody say, oh yeah, he looks like us. That's great to see. But other than that, we never saw anything. It was just, you know, hey, well, you know Pelé, you know Maradona, you know like these great names, but you, everything is like trying to justify your existence. I think even, you know, your white counterpart players that were on your team or otherwise or played against, They didn't have much to look at either because Mm. the landscape here, there was no coverage. Despite being a trailblazer and a local hero here in Milwaukee and beyond, Jimmy Banks is often described as a private person, humble to the extent that even someone incredibly close to him might not have fully grasped the extent of his legacy. So I have to be completely honest with you, and I always like telling this story. I actually didn't find out that my dad played at the World Cup from him. I found out through a family friend. Oh, wow. How old were you when you found out? I was in middle school. So I was like, <laughs> I think like 13. 
12, 13 or something like that. Walk so, me like, through your reaction. Yeah, so I was at lunchtime and I was talking to somebody that I've known um, for quite some time. He was one of my brother's friends, so that's how I met him. Mm-hmm. And then he was also teaching, coaching at the school at the time. So I was talking to him about some, uh, something. Um, I think I was talking about practice or something. Mm-hmm. And then he was talking about that. Yeah, I remember when your dad was playing in the World Cup and learning <laughs> about that. And I was like, huh. That's funny. Like, yeah. Because we always, like, joke around with each other and things like that. He's like, no, I'm serious. Like, you know, when your dad played in the World Cup, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, you're being for real right now? You do know <laughs> your dad played in the World Cup? I'm like, no. So then I went home, talked to my brothers about it. He's like, yeah, daddy played in the World Cup. How do you not know that he played in the World Cup? You never looked around the house to see all these things that he's got up? And I'm like, yeah, those those were just, like, things that he bought off, the, like, you know, Mm-hmm. from different shops things like that like it just it never clicked to me that yeah. oh he actually played in the world cup then i actually like called him on the phone i was like dad you played in the world Cup? like yeah thought i told you i played in the world cup like we talked about it all the time I'm like i promise you we have never talked about this before so i was just like and growing up i've been playing soccer since i was like three years old mm-hmm. and i was told that like i would do things like i'd run out on the field and like in the middle of like adult games and things like that and always being coached by like my dad, my brothers, meeting a lot of people through my dad because he's so well known in the community mm-hmm. that it never clicked to me why he was so well known. Yeah. I've only grew up knowing him as like a great father and then uh, like a great coach, a great person for people in the community. Mm-hmm. Never heard about him being a great player. Like I've heard about him in, you know, in the Milwaukee way. Of course, I know he's a great player. But yeah. I never heard about him actually playing in the World Cup. Yeah, like that great of a player. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So, that mm-hmm. is such a wild story. Um, did did your perception of your dad change after that? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because I always knew that he was a great player, mm-hmm. but never knew to what height he was. Like, he ended up playing for the U.S. national team. Mm-hmm. Like, there's only, what, 23, 25 players that are even considered to be on that team. And then only 18 for every single game. He was one of those players that actually played in the games, mm-hmm. you know. And, like, that's a really, really huge accomplishment. Mm-hmm. On top of that, he's one of the first two black players to actually be selected for the national team, you know. So now that, like, understanding that now, like, he actually played in the World Cup and then seeing, like, how well-known he is around Milwaukee. And not just Milwaukee. Like, whenever we go travel for, like, a traveling team, like, with my brother's team and things like that, he's always meeting somebody I'm just like, he just knows everybody, mm-hmm. you know. But once I heard that, it's like, okay, now this makes sense. He's a great player. Yeah. This is why he's a great coach. This is why it seems like he's a great person to everybody else mm-hmm. as well, and why everybody respects him so much. For Wendell, his connection is different. Being around the same age as Jimmy Banks, in 1990, while he was a high school senior, he landed a summer internship at the medical college. And this seemingly ordinary experience turned out to be a pivotal moment, ultimately leading him to get to know Jimmy Banks beyond the sports magazines. It just happened to be a lab where the doctor and most of his staff all were soccer geeks, which is unheard of again in Milwaukee. But like he also had a staff that was mostly like foreign born or like Mm -hmm. immigrant folks. Yeah. So they were into it having these conversations. So, you know, I'd be like. Is there any way, like, at some point, can we meet this guy? Can we meet Bob Gans? And they were like, you know, some of them having been involved in the kickers at the time, mm-hmm. we're like, well, we do know of them and whatnot. And so kept in touch. I moved back to Milwaukee, and I was coaching as a senior at college at Northwestern. I came back, 
talked to the doctor again. He's happened to be the president of the board of the kickers. And he said, well, there's this fledgling program that they need some help with. And uh, why don't you just call these guys? And uh, Bob Gansler happened to be the coach. I was like, Coach Gansler? He's like, yeah, you need to help these kids out. Do you mind doing it? No, not at all. So it was the beginning of the Symbolion program. Just for clarity, the Milwaukee Simbas is a nonprofit founded by Jimmy Banks and Floyd DeBow. And it's a city-based soccer club that works in Milwaukee's central city, utilizing soccer as an organizing tool to channel urban, minority, and low-income youth into organized activities. And so Gansler's coaching the team. I'm hanging out with him on nights and evenings, basically following him around, doing little lessons with everybody. And then about a year later, they're like, you know, we really need to transition to make this more of a formal program. Jimmy's like thinking about coming back, staying, and like kind of coaching full time. So I get to meet him for the first time. So I'm like geeking mm-hmm. out, right? I'm like, I've got Ganser and I've got Jimmy to meet. So he probably was like annoyed with me because <laughs> all I did was ask him about the World Cup. And I couldn't yeah. stop asking him, you know, like once practice was over, you know, of course, like, uh, many people don't know Coach Ganser's got a pretty like wicked sense of humor. So, you know, as much as I'm asking him questions and this is like my idol, Ganser's like, he's not that great. Don't worry about him. <laughs> he, he's like, he was one of my worst players ever. He barely made the team. He's giving him a hard time. And then like, yeah. you know, he looked at Jimmy and he's like looking him up and down. And he's like, what's that back there? And he's like, what do you mean back there? He's like, it looks like two pillows. Is it two pillows back there? Or is that your actual butt? <laughs> <laughs> and so he's, he's bursting his bubble. So every, you know, okay. it's like two weeks of kind of like transitioning the, the program over. But it was great to like spend time with him. And mm-hmm. you can see, you know, I would say more than the greatness in his soccer, like the greatness as a person, because mm-hmm. he was very humble. He didn't talk about it a whole lot. When he, and when he did, you know, it was really self-deprecating either jokes for himself or the yeah. teammates. So... He talk about like the guys in the team, like a Tony Mayola. Every time I asked him about him, he deferred to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And he always had a funny anecdote about these other players, right? Yeah. So he always brought everything kind of back down to earth. Um, talked about like, you know, we, we talk about how you get through to certain kids and how you adapt to different people. So I learned more about probably life than soccer for mm-hmm. Did Did Jimmy ever talk about maybe any challenges that he faced as one of the few black athletes back in the day in his early soccer career? Yeah, I think, you know, <clears throat> so it's not uncommon, right, as, you know, you're, you're in a sport that's predominantly white. Um, you know, I think the way that Jimmy kind of looked at it was, like, let your performance speak for mm-hmm. what you need to do because, you know, I think many of us were kind of brought up, like, looking at and idolizing a Jackie Robinson that didn't really retaliate, or if they mm-hmm. did, it was in such a manner where that, you know, you couldn't be in trouble for the retaliation. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, you got one over on your opponent. And so, you know, I watched the way Jimmy coached younger players. And, you know, I did the same thing even before meeting him. I'd say to kids that would have a problem or get angry, it's like you can't let that manifest itself in your play. You can't run and, like, follow somebody. You can't take it back with a swing. You've got to find a more productive way to channel that. And I think, you know, obviously Jimmy had mentors in his life that, because I can only imagine, right, you're – you're, you're going into foreign countries and mm-hmm. they're throwing, you know, bags of urine and batteries and things at you. That's part of that experience and mm-hmm. he doesn't retaliate. And then you add to it the racism part as well because that's just being an adversary of these teams. Yeah. Right? That happens and these, most people don't realize the, 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 you know, kind of vitriol that sometimes you face just as an adversary on the field, let alone then add the skin complexion mm-hmm. piece to it. So I think, you know, he, he just, 
had this sense of calm about him and knew that, you know, kind of like the story you said, he's he's going to just show it with like, look at my skill. I can do things here you can't. Yeah. And I think, you know, anybody that was around him that felt like, you know, you were almost, and I saw like there were kids and teenagers, right, that we coach and you'd see him coaching his players from, you know, a different field and you see them act out and they realize like, I'm kind of embarrassed that I did this mm-hmm. because look who my coach is. He's not having a meltdown with whatever happened or even when he would, you know, get upset with a referee. It was a tone that was always respectful, but it was like, you're going to know that, hey, ref, you did cross a line here. Like, I don't appreciate, like, how you treated my players or, like, you weren't paying attention to the game properly. So I think he was always fair but stern, and that's probably how, you know, he approached it because, you know, as a person of color, you know growing up that certain things are stacked against you. Mm -hmm. You're just going to have to deal with that. And I think, you know, the few conversations we always had about race, it wasn't like, you know, in depth, but it's like, you know, he kind of wink or not, like, you know how this is going to be. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't let it fluster you. You just know. And so you have that like common sharing of like, okay, big brothers kind of went through it. And I had other cousins and relatives that did. So we had our own shared language and understanding that like, mm-hmm. we'll get ours. Let's not worry about it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And you mentioned a little previously that you um, learned a lot of lessons off the field from Jimmy Banks. Have there been any specific values or lessons that Jimmy impacted both of you guys that you continue, it continues to resonate with you guys today? Right after the break, both Jordan and Wendell will answer this question. And later, we learn why Jimmy Banks decided to stay in Milwaukee after the World Cup and learn more about Friends of Jimmy Banks the organization that is fundraising to preserve his legacy. Do you want to know the secret behind the programming you love? It's all funded by the honor system. As a public radio station, we're based on a very simple model. We try to do something meaningful, connecting with you through music and stories. And then we count on those who appreciate what we do to show their support. Are you one of them? Show your support by visiting RadioMilwaukee.org and joining today. Have there been any specific values or lessons that Jimmy impacted both of you guys that you continue, it continues to resonate with you guys today? One thing that I can take from everything that he's taught me, if I was to summarize it, was just understanding like the importance of leaving behind a legacy mm-hmm. and just being making sure that you're still an inspiration to so many people. And I wish I would have appreciated that a lot more while he was here. And applying everything that and looking at how he coached his players and not only how he coached them but also how he gave them room to be able to improve on certain things right so of course he's teaching them how to dribble when it's time to dribble and things like that but also giving them opportunities not only in the game but in practices to actually work on it right and then also doing things and teaching it in a way that's still applied not only to the game but also outside of the game as well Mm -hmm. right so it's not knowing um, how to attack, but when to attack, right? Like it's not always your turn to give this type of information for something. Maybe it's not your time to um, apply for this job, but, you know, when it's time, Mm -hmm. you know, not how to apply, but when to apply. And just being able to see how he's been such an inspiration to not only me and not only my brothers, but to so many people around us in the community, that's a really beautiful thing to Mm -hmm. see, you know, because now I'm at the point where I'm starting to understand that I'm not the little kid, the little baby boy anymore. And you're the youngest, correct? Yep, and I'm the youngest kid, the youngest boy of the three. And 
now I'm starting to work with a lot of the people that I saw growing up being coached by him, being inspired mm-hmm. by him. Now they're running programs and doing things, and now I'm working with them and trying to collaborate to um, help them with their programs, help with yeah. our programs and things like that, and being more of a collaborative effort. So yeah. now it's kind of like, wow, I'm really growing up now. Like, <laughs> now I actually understand, like, why he was such an inspiration to mm-hmm. them, you know. Yeah, he would be proud. And I think it's such a beautiful and strange thing to see your father or your parent beyond just a parent and as a person. Mm-hmm. What about yourself? Is there anything, any yeah. lesson? I mean, I think there's a few that just to dovetail again off of what you said. He, You know, it was making an assumption because I haven't talked to him recently about it, but I'm, you know, the way mm-hmm. when spending like a year and a half with Coach Gansler and then, you know, about a month with Jimmy and then always like kind of keeping in touch or just see, you know, the platitudes of each other saying hi and the niceties. One, you know, he never thought he was like above doing something. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of people and coaches that are like, I'm only going to coach players that are at this level or higher. Well, it didn't matter who you put in front of him. He was going to coach them. And the same thing with Coach Ganser, right? This guy coached the World Cup, and now he's coaching inner city kids that may not literally have any talent. And he's like, I'm going to teach you. I mean, you're going to get mm-hmm. some talent out of this. <laughs> like, you may, you're not going to be, like, great, but you're, I'm going to get the best I can out of you because you're in front of me today. So they, they never mm-hmm. did that. Both of them, especially Jimmy, never didn't say hello to somebody. Always remember their names. So things like that, like, okay, if he's not too good for it, I'm definitely not too good for it. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, keeping some of that humility but like you know um i think really just treating everybody with some respect Mm -hmm. right regardless of where they come from you don't know what's happened in their day i think that was a big part of it to me and then really how they both approach the game and especially jimmy like you said it was a microcosm of life and i think he'd ask questions to players so Mm -hmm. it was one of the first few times i saw people asking questions they would normally you're coaching you're dictating and telling he'd say why did you attack why didn't you defend this? Like, what was going through your mind? So instead of, like, screaming at you about, like, hey, you didn't step in and defend, you might do it initially, but then he's like, now i got to understand and ask you, why didn't you do it? Mm-hmm. What were you thinking? Because, like, I need you to think through. Like, I can't make you do any of these things. That's the beauty of soccer. Like, it's, what's done is done. Mm-hmm. You can't. There's no timeouts. I've got to give you enough information to be able to make decisions yourself, and hopefully you make some good decisions on the field. And then really, hopefully, they translate to some good decisions like off the field yeah. in the rest of your life. So I think to me, and I would hope for Jimmy, the same thing. I know he was proud of many of his players, what they did in life, because we weren't expecting anybody to go to another World Cup. Like, okay, fine, if you play college, that's great. But quite frankly, that's another job for people. So mm-hmm. you want it to be fun experiences that they have that, again, can translate to, hey, if we learned we were great teammates together and we went through di- adversity and we overcame it or we didn't, how do we relate to that? Because it's going to happen in the workplace. Yeah. Right? All these things are, we don't like each other, but we're teammates. Can we still get along to get the thing accomplished? <laughs> yeah. Right? Those types of things, I think, were super important. Actually, when you just said that, you reminded me of something that I've always heard growing up, and it just stuck to me again, is that one thing he used to always say is, like, the clock is ticking. Mm-hmm. And I always used to apply it to soccer, like, okay, the clock is ticking. You got to make sure that you, of course... When you're on the field, you got to make sure you always make the right decisions and things. But it also applies to life as well. And I used to wonder why he says it all the time. And I always used to think, like, clock is ticking. Okay, this means that time might be running out. Mm-hmm. I have only so much time to do all of these opportunities. But now I'm starting to think it wasn't just about that. And it was just more about 
appreciating the amount of time that you do have. Yeah. Like, no matter if you do something this day or the next day, the clock is always ticking, right? Or things like, um, you never know when it's going to be the last time that you might see somebody, mm-hmm. that you might um, have an opportunity to be nice to somebody. So no matter what, always make sure that you make the best decisions possible during that time. Jimmy was really young in college when the World Cup happened. I can imagine after that, like, feeling like, you know, you can go anywhere and do anything. Why do you think he came back to Milwaukee and kept roots in the city? I think the major thing about it is the fact that he was just so humble growing up and then knowing the neighborhood that he came from and seeing the heights that he was able to go to Mm -hmm. being a soccer player. I think he wanted to give an opportunity to a lot of other people and do the same thing as well and give them the same opportunities that Mm -hmm. he was given, right? And it seems like it's very strange to see somebody that would move back to the hood rather than, okay, I'm at this site, I'm going to move out of the hood so that I can stay away from this situation. But instead, he stayed in the hood, in these neighborhoods where, um, you know, there's more poverty, there's uh, less opportunities for people to try and come out of it. It may not be the safest neighborhoods, mm-hmm. but he still decided to stay there because at the end of the day, it was a choice, mm-hmm. right? But he still chose to be there. And I think that is a very beautiful thing to think about, the fact that he chose to come back to it rather than staying away from it, never be connected to it again and just yeah. staying far away from it. I love the idea. It's like keeping the door open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think, I think the biggest thing for him was like, you know, I, I could go somewhere else like all my teammates did. And typically what happened, you know, you may be able to sign a contract overseas or mm-hmm. go to a bigger city and, you know, a better professional opportunity. But I think at the end of the day, he thought, you know, I could really do a lot of good with my community if I come back. You know, I think I look back at like all the kids that started in that program, you know, no one's on drugs, no one's in jail. Mm-hmm. They're all, you know, like what you maybe stereotypically think of as like young black males and what's happening to them. That didn't happen with anybody in the Simba Lions. That didn't happen with anybody coached at Riverside. Everybody he coached, you know, I think more than anything, they're great young men, great young people. Mm-hmm. They're doing, you know, great work in our community. So I think for him, he knew his impact was going to be bigger here than going somewhere else where he didn't have that hometown touch. Thank you for um, giving us that perspective. In the grand scheme of things, in U.S. soccer, has the representation of black players changed since Jimmy's time? To me now, I mean, I pause every time, for the most part, if my children are around or back home, because, you know, one's graduate from college, one's in college, and one's in high school, but if they're around the TV and I'm watching a national team game, I pause the starting lineup and call them down to say, this is Jimmy's impact, because Mm -hmm. the majority of the team is black, the majority of player pool is black or brown. And so having that largest of color, I mean, I would have never thought growing up that I'd ever see that. Yeah. I, I figured, okay, we got our two. If we can just keep two, that like throughout the decades, we'd be doing pretty good. I never thought this would happen where, you know, you look at last year's, uh, well, not last year, but like 22, the World Cup then, um, really almost the entire, well, the starting lineup outside of really Pulisic was black, Mm -hmm. you know, and you look at the players that were on the bench, majority black, and I'm like, this is, this is unbelievable for U.S. soccer. So, you know, there's, there's like the pride that you have in that 
having known him, been around him, but then like, you know, for me, I have a little bit of like resentment towards U.S. soccer because they don't celebrate this. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, you know, it's not for me like what it should be. And I'm a little resentful of our uh, like neighbors and residents of Milwaukee that don't know the story or like when they hear it, they're like, uh, so, so. And I'm like, you do not understand how big this is. Yeah. Right. Like there are so many of us that would have probably stopped playing had we not seen him play. Because you're always wondering, like, what am I doing doing this? And everybody's doing something else. I'm the outlier all the yeah. time. So, you know, it's like you're an outlier in many parts of your daily life here in Milwaukee. And then you add another outlier part. But finally, to see somebody, it's like, okay, not all the stuff I did was crazy. Like, mm-hmm. somebody else was doing it, too. Yeah. And I've got to think that for everybody on the national team that came after him, your Eddie Popes and others were like, man, if I could, if they could make it, I could mm-hmm. make it and stay on the roster, in the player pool, make it through all these trials, I can keep doing it. So for me, that you know, to see the composition of the team now, um, it's affirmation that we belong, that we're just as good as every other type of player that was out there. I would like to talk a little bit about Friends of Jimmy Banks, uh, that organization. How did that happen? What is it? And what does it hope to accomplish? Well, you know, the friends really, Rob Harrington, MSOE, coach with Jimmy, Jordan, family came together and really said, like, look, it's, it's time to at least bring the story to light, if anything else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the good old-fashioned letter-writing campaign into Milwaukee Public mm-hmm. Schools, you know, let's, let's think of a way to honor him. He played at Custer Stadium. You know, obviously there were football legends there, but from a true global impact, he's the only one that has that from in that stadium, mm-hmm. and it happened to be soccer. So really bringing that attention to the forefront, I think, you know, I happened to be, um, when it started, I think I had transitioned from chief operating officer in the district into being the executive director at the NPS Foundation. So the gang got a hold of me and was like, hey, you know, we're writing letters. We're not sure where this is even going. Yeah. It's going anywhere. And so I said, let me try to carry some water and get these people to understand why they're getting so many letters. This is not, like I said, just a passive thing. Right. And really kind of proselytizing everybody on, like, here is the legend of Jimmy. Here's why this is important. A simple concept would be just renaming the stadium. Mm-hmm. That would be a nice mm-hmm. first touch. Mm-hmm. But, like, at the end of the day, we'd love to see, like, a commemorative mural, some other things happening. So that's really where this has gone to, from the letter-writing campaign to now uh, the renaming of the stadium. Mm-hmm. And then the final piece would be raising enough funds in the next year or less to get this, you know, really a quality Mm -hmm. mural painted up there. And that shows his legacy. Friends of Jimmy Banks is currently fundraising with a goal of $40,000 to continue the legacy of Jimmy Banks with a public mural. The link of the fundraiser can be found on our website. But Jordan says this is just the start. I really appreciate the fact that we've started the Friends of Jimmy Banks. And then something else that me and the family are actually doing is that we're starting um, something as well. We're going to start a nonprofit called the Jimmy Banks Academy. And it's very exciting. We'll start releasing more information very soon about it. But hopefully our mission is just to make sure that we're able to inspire a lot of the youth to make sure that we give them opportunities to come out of some of the situations that they're in right now and give them opportunities to explore the world, explore different cultures, different mm-hmm. communities, and different ideas as well. So yeah, I love that's that. something I'm very, very excited to, to be able to start as well. 
since we are a radio station, is there a song that you guys would like to recommend that either reminds you of Jimmy or your dad or a song that you think he would play walking up on the field? Either or. I'll be honest. I'm pretty sure he would not play this. He wouldn't. I'm (laughs) pretty sure what I would suggest the World Cup song that they played. I'll show you a clip from a classic sport, soccer. This video features the USA World Cup soccer team who've made the World Cup for the first time in 40 years. Hooray! The tune called Victory, appropriately enough, was written by Def Jeff, Eric Vaughn, and others. And it's the theme for the team's 1990 quest. Good luck, guys. They, the U.S. national team actually made a song before they went to the World Cup. And it, I've seen it on YouTube a couple times. I'll look it I, up. Perfect. Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty funny. Okay. Every year I take a look at it just to see. It, it's pretty good. For, me. for the World Cup in 1990. Hi, I'm Kim Shine, production manager at Radio Milwaukee. Thank you to our host, Salam Fatayer, Tariq Moody, our executive producer, and Brett Kraskowski, who is our web editor. Thank you to our marketing team led by Sarah Lar, our graphics and wonderful logo made by Aaron Bagata. Mallory Wallace is our community engagement and membership manager, and Dan Reiner and Darren Brewer handle our social media. A big thank you to city-loving members for making Uniquely Milwaukee possible. Tune in next Tuesday for our next episode. Heart and soul, you have the tools to achieve your goals.